Good morning, church. It's, uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Um, we are here because of good news. I am here because of good news. As I was driving in this morning, I was thinking to myself, why do Christians all over the planet, all over the world this morning, in communities and buildings and gyms and churches and homes, gathering together in the name of Jesus? I was wondering that. And my answer this morning is simple. Good news. Good news. We are here because of good news. You see, when our Lord Jesus first appeared on the scene, when he first arrived in Galilee, in the land of Israel, the very first words of his public ministry were an announcement of good news. The evangelists tell us that Jesus came into Galilee around the year 30 AD and proclaimed the gospel of God. Gospel, good news. It's the same, same word. Mark reports it this way. The words were, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Matthew the evangelist shortens it a bit and puts it this way. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Near. History is at a crisis point. A new era has dawned in the history of the world because the king himself has arrived. What is that demand? Repent. Repent simply means turn around, throw your weight on God, because a new king has arrived, a new sheriff is in town, and he's about to turn things right side up. So throw your weight on this good news. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus then, Matthew tells us, gathers a bunch of ordinary disciples and begins his ministry, picks a few fishermen that maybe have encountered him, and he knows them. He invites them to follow him, and it just takes off. In Matthew 4, we see healing and delivering, teaching and proclaiming of this gospel. The bringer of good news then sits down to deliver the most revolutionary sermon in the history of the world. And that will be the topic of our sermon this morning. If you have a Bible, would you open it to Matthew chapter 5? Verses 3, that's where we'll begin. Verse 3, I think we have the text up. And church, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, to stand once again for the reading of the word. And I will read the first portion, the blessed are part. And I'm going to ask you to respond with the for they are and so forth. So for example, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I will say the blessed are part, you say for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, let's do this. I'll read the, the, the top part myself. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll read this part. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
My aim this morning is to show us the Beatitudes as a single package, as one package, the way I believe the Lord intended us uh, to receive them. We could camp for weeks uh, in each one of them, but I just want to appreciate them this morning as a package, a single package of good news, of good news from Jesus, all in one. So first I'll ask, who are these blessed people that he is describing? And what does it mean to be blessed? Second, we'll look at the blessings themselves. And finally, we'll close by looking once again at the, at the one doing the blessing and how each of these beatitudes, these blessings, point us back to him. So first of all, who is being blessed? A little more background is crucial for us to answer that question. You see, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Matthew records for us what has become known to us at, as the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with these Beatitudes. And the first thing that Jesus begins with in the sermon is to describe the people who have done that repentance, that turning around that we just talked about a moment ago. People who have made that U-turn and thrown their weight on God and believed this good news. That the kingdom is here. It is near. It is now in the person of Jesus Christ. That this kingdom news is going to be shaping kingdom people. That's what he begins with. The Beatitudes, says one commentator beautifully, he says they're concentrated gospel. What will the people who follow Jesus look like? What kind of people will you and I become as we follow him and as his gospel grabs a hold of us more and more? What will happen as we embrace him and throw our weight on this good news. Maybe as you listen this morning, you'll recognize Jesus is doing this in your heart, but maybe you'll recognize that you need to respond, that you haven't yet thrown your weight on Him. That's okay too. Maybe today is the day you can do that. This is the beginning of the gospel according to Jesus. Eight Beatitudes, gospelized people, kingdom-ready people. They've taken hold of Jesus. They're not super apostles. They're not super disciples. There's nothing special about them. They're ordinary people. I want you to imagine standing on the hillside that day. People broken, hurting, scared. Some are curious. They're ordinary people. Some are skeptical. And some are there to find fault with this new teacher. But there are no super disciples here. See, that's what the Beatitudes are all about. The first part of Jesus' manifesto to the world is about a new community, a new kind of people that will show and tell the wonders of His grace. You know, elsewhere in the Gospels, they're described as spirit-filled people or born-again people. Blessed are they, people who have received the grace of Jesus because they've met Him. There's nothing else impressive about them. I emphasize all of this because for a long time, I received the Beatitudes as demands. Try to be poor in spirit. Try to mourn. Try hard to be sad about your sins. Uh, maybe try to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Try to be merciful. And it becomes this, it becomes this effort that I'm making as opposed to a gift that Jesus has given me and something that His Spirit is working inside of me. It is not a list of instructions or demands. 
And the more honest, honestly, in the past, the more I looked at them, the more I felt frustrated with myself. Until recently, I became to experience them as gospel. The words of Daryl Johnson, one preacher, have really helped me as I've looked at them again. He says, separate Jesus' Beatitudes from Jesus' gospel, and they become either frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. If we do not read these Beatitudes as good news, as something Jesus gives us, we end up distorting or misusing them. Alright, so um, before we begin our marathon through each of them, I just want to ask, what is the meaning of that word blessed? Blessed are. Blessed are. What, what is the meaning of blessed? Scholars have debated that word for a long time. In the Greek, it's just one word, makarios. Some translators say it means happy. Happy are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But it sounds a little bit glib, doesn't it? What about congratulations to you? Or fortunate are you? Because that also could be what it means. Congratulations to you. But these would have a note maybe of having achieved something. Maybe you've actually worked hard. And so congratulations to you, you've earned it. But that's not quite what it's getting at either. I want to suggest to you what uh, preacher Daryl Johnson suggests, which is that blessed here is getting that right side up are you if you are poor in spirit. You are in sync with the kingdom of heaven and with the heart of God. Right side up are you if you are one of these people. Recently, I had to take my car in and they told me that the wheels needed to be aligned. They were out of sync. And that's the picture here, right? We need a heart alignment with the kingdom of heaven and God comes to do that by His grace. So let's dig in this morning and look at these eight Beatitudes. We'll do three merry-go-rounds. Two will be really fast and the last one will be slow. So here we go. Notice how the Beatitudes are bracketed. Bracket, I have kids, so if you're laughing, that's because I have kids. I think about these things a lot. Bracketed. Um, the, these Beatitudes are bracketed together by the kingdom of heaven. So look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one is blessed are those, what is it? Who are persecuted for righteousness sake, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's a sign that theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it applies to all eight Beatitudes. You could apply that to all of them. All of these people belong in the kingdom. They are people who have come to Christ and submitted to His reign. And they have the signs of life. Theirs is the kingdom. So they bracket together. Notice also how they blend. In other words, scholars are right to argue that the poverty in spirit, mourning, gentleness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, purity in heart, peacemaking, these are the result of the gospel breaking into us. They blend together. It's not like, you, it's not like a shopping list. You know, it's, they all are working together in our lives and in our hearts. One commentator says the clearest sign that human beings are in fact making a U-turn and embracing Jesus and His gospel is that they are becoming blessed are people, kingdom-ready people. Now we come to the third merry-go-round, how they build upon each other. And we'll, we'll, we'll go slow with that one this morning. They build upon each other. First of all, the poor in spirit, the mourners, and the meek. We'll look at these three together. And I want to suggest to you that these are the attitudes of need. The attitudes of need. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The best way I can describe the poor in spirit is that they are spiritual beggars. Right on, says Jesus, if you are a spiritual beggar. Do you come with empty hands this morning? Do you come at the end of yourself? Do you feel that you have truly nothing to offer in light of God's amazing grace to you? In light of the cross? Right side up, says Jesus. Right on. Do you feel that you come as a beggar in need of mercy? A wretch making no demands on him, except to be attached to him alone. Blessed are you. Surprise, says Jesus. Congratulations. Blessed are you. The kingdom is yours. And isn't that what we read in the rest of Scripture? That God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, spiritual beggars don't boast about achievements, not because they don't have any, but because they love to say that it's all of grace, because it's true. They know it's all gift. It's all mercy. It's all something they do not deserve. You see, for them, grace alone is not just a slogan. It's their heartbeat. Justification by faith through grace alone can sound heady sometimes. But this is Jesus' way of putting it. The poor in spirit, the needy, the spiritual beggars. That's the central article of our faith. We've read this morning, or we've prayed together, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. One hymn, one hymnist, I love it. One of my favorite hymns, he says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you feel that poverty and desperation this morning? If so, blessed are you. The second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, this is mourning, not just sadness. This is a profound kind of grief that he is describing. And the Greek shows that it's not just a one-time fit of sorrow or tears or regret about something that you've done, but something active and continuing. It's an active, profound mourning. I just wonder what is Jesus talking about when he blesses and cheers on those who mourn and are filled with tears? How strange, right? But again, it would be strange if it's something you worked up. If, if it wasn't the gospel that grabbed the hold of you and the scriptures became the spectacles by which you see the world for what it is. Sin. Brokenness. Not just inside of us, but outside of us. Everywhere. We see brokenness and death and turmoil and manipulation and lies. The shortest verse in the Bible describes Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Two words, Jesus wept. It says, all is not right with the world. Often, we get that impression, don't we, when we, you know, uh, when we listen to the news or when we learn about the history of humanity and it just seems to all be upwards progress. But with the eyes of faith, we can celebrate the good things that God has brought into the world, but also see it for what it is. There is brokenness. There is sin, and it needs to be dealt with. 
So mourners see this and they mourn it profoundly. They mourn it inside and they also mourn it with their witness. They long for the day when God will make things right. An old Anglican prayer, I love it, says, We acknowledge, O Lord, and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. And, and they got it from the Apostle Paul who says, We fall short of the glory of God. But then there's the promise. It doesn't end there. For you shall be comforted. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The day is coming, friends, when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain, he says. And the Holy Spirit, the God of all comfort, will fill us with all joy. And he already is doing that, isn't he? As we learn to mourn. He fills us with joy inexpressible and full of glory, full of the hope of glory. Notice that the mourners are not sulky people. Okay? It's not the people who, you know, just are always down on themselves. That's not who he's talking about. Like I said, this is a morning of repentance, but like Jesus promises, it is overcome by joy and comfort and faith. And it brims with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the last beatitude of need. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Please understand, Jesus does not make disciples with no brain, no brawn, no backbone, no convictions, courage, or strength. That's not who the meek are. That's not what we're talking about here. You know, Scripture describes two people as meek in the Bible. There's two people who are meek. Moses and Jesus. That's actually one of Jesus' favorite titles about himself. For I am gentle and humble at heart. It's the same word. I am meek and humble at heart, Jesus says in Matthew 11. Meekness, I want to suggest to you this morning, is incredible strength tempered by gentleness. It takes divine strength to be meek. I don't know if there's kids here, but the adults might appreciate this too. Think of Aslan, right? The lion. Is he safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Strength tempered by gentleness. He's good. It might help us to uh, describe the opposite of meek. What's the opposite of meek? I'll tell you what the opposite of meek is because I know firsthand. The last few weeks, I've been very fretful. I've been just worked up about stuff, self-absorbed and disturbed about what's going on inside me and outside me. I don't know if you struggle with managing your complex emotions sometimes. David has a solution for that. Psalm 37. He starts by describing his, his fretfulness. And what is his conclusion at the end? He says, wait for the Lord. And keep his way. And he will exalt you to what? To inherit the land. Isn't that the promise that Jesus gives us? Blessed are the meek for they shall what? They shall inherit the earth. This very earth. In other words, keep humble. Calm your heart in the presence of the Lord. Don't get pushy and shovey and try to make, you know, get your way. Wait for the Lord. He will exalt you to inherit the land. That's Jesus' promise to us. Amen? So, so far, three beatitudes of need. Needy people who grab hold of Christ and of His gospel. Their whole lives become gradually characterized by a reliance on grace alone. Blessed are they. Now we come to the central beatitude, and I want to suggest to you, it's kind of like the hinge of the door 
between the first three and the last three. Okay? It's the central beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What is righteousness? Sounds like a stuffy word, doesn't it? Righteousness. Righteousness just means right relationship. Right relationship with God and with people. It's the right relationship with the living God, reconciled to Him, walking transparently, keeping short accounts with my God and with my neighbor, friend or foe, making things right. That's what righteousness is. That's how Jesus summarized the law, right? Is to love God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. One way to look at this beatitude is to ask, what is it that you, this morning, that you and I, long for and mourn the lack of? What do we want the most out of our lives? Answer, righteousness. We want right relationships. We want right relationships with God. We want right relationships with other people. We want that. And God comes in Christ and gives it to us as a righteousness that is not our own, except through Jesus Christ. As the deer pants for streams of living water, we too learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Something powerful begins to happen inside us. We become satisfied more and more in the Lord. We discover a well of of life and joy that we can't come up with ourselves. We taste and see that the Lord is good. We're starving people, people starving for righteousness, right? Like the rest of the world, we are starving for righteousness. And God generously comes and gives it to us in the gospel, doesn't he? Relationships restored. If you've been a Christian for some time, you probably have a story like that. You've seen relationships that were once broken, restored. I've seen it. And that's the power of the gospel, right? That's what happens to kingdom-ready people on mission for Jesus. They experience this. I just want to add too, I wish we would experience this more and more as churches, right? As churches together, working and showing that righteousness to the world. That the world sees that we're not just talking about righteousness and preaching it, but even with each other as Christians, they will know that you are disciples by what? By your love for one another. The right relationships, right? Righteousness restored. And I wonder sometimes when I talk to my friends, I was just talking to a co-pilot yesterday in the airplane. He just says, look at those Christians. They're always fighting among themselves. Always. And I thought of this parable, you know. This righteousness is something that we need to work out as Christians too. With one another. All right. Um, so can you see how these, right, these, um, these beatitudes are building up on each other? Because now we are going from beatitudes of need to that central beatitude that makes us long for more and seek God's face until we're satisfied. And now we see in the last three that God is turning us into a people of action. A people of action. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I personally think that this is one of the most difficult of all the beatitudes. Not just to interpret, but to live out. Right on, says Jesus. Right on are the merciful. But as William Barclay puts it, when mercy lodges in the heart, it expresses itself in the hand. If we've experienced the mercy of Jesus, do we share it with others? If we've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, do we extend it to those who offend us and hurt us 
and to those who owe us. You see, that's what the Lord teaches His disciples to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's a hard one. It's probably the one line in the, in, in the Lord's Prayer every time that I stop and go, that's a hard one. Have we forgiven our debtors? Let me suggest to you once again that this does not come, up, come to us naturally. Um, last year, I had to move a home that we lived in for about eight months that we really loved. We really loved living in that home. And things were just really bad with the neighbor. It was very difficult to, um, to get along. It was the nature of the property. We had to share so much together and it just did not work out. And I remember listening to, uh, to uh, a sermon as I was working on my heart and driving up the driveway and he was standing there and this verse came to mind, blessed are the merciful. And my first thought was, him? Show him mercy after all he's done? And I felt the Lord say, yes, him. Yeah, your neighbor. Um, and it came at a cost. You know, it, it, uh, it wasn't a neat resolution, but, um, I, you know, I, I think I showed him mercy. Mercy is seeing debt that is owed to us, or hurt and sin, and seeing that need, and seeking ways to find, to help, and, 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 and seeking ways to make it right. Seeking ways to show mercy. And mercy always involves risk and sacrifice, doesn't it? Right? It doesn't come, con- it, it, it doesn't come easily. It's not convenient. Um, the, the story of the Good Samaritan comes to mind, right? It, it, it is at great cost to him that he takes the man lying on the side of the road, picks him up, puts him up at his own expense, you know, until he's healed and doing well. That is mercy. That is sacrifice. He, he, could, have, he could have himself gotten robbed. Right? He, he went out of the way to do that. He wasted some of his money maybe on somebody who didn't deserve it. But he knew mercy. In a time uh, in our culture when there is so much, um, when we are described and bracketed by who we are in our identities, where do you fit? Are we Christians crossing those lines to associate with those who are different from us and showing mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Three more Beatitudes as we wrap up. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think this is one of the greatest promises that Jesus ever makes. We are promised here, I believe, that we will behold God Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, once asked him, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be happy. We will be satisfied. And what was Jesus' response? Have I been with you for so long, Philip? And you do not know, you do not know me, and you have not come to know that he who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus makes that promise in the Beatitudes to every disciple who is pure in heart. This is one of the greatest desires of my life, and I think it ought to animate each one of us as disciples to see the face of God. We were made for this. What is the purity that Jesus describes? He is describing um, an unalloyed, unadulterated, transparent heart that wants one thing, to see God. There's one philosopher, Kierkegaard, he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. I love that line. 
one thing, and that one thing for us Christians is Jesus Christ. As the gospel grabs hold of us, I believe that the good news begins to purify us from the inside out. Maybe you've been struggling for a long time with a sin that makes you unclean, impurity. And the gospel comes and promises us that over time, God will cleanse us from the inside out. He will purify us so that, we, so that we can see God. The gospel does that work in us. We become beatitude people. In other words, um, I think if you want to become a person who is increasingly pure in heart, you should look at all the previous beatitudes that have been building up to this point. Become a person who is poor in heart. A repentant, mournful person. A meek person. A hungry, thirsty for righteousness person. A merciful person. And I think you will see God. I think that's part of the promise here. How do we cultivate this purity of heart? Walk with Him. Talk with Him. Commune with Him. Be in fellowship with Him all the time. Not just on Sundays, not just in church, not just when you were doing something religious, not just in your quiet time, but all the time. Commune in His presence. He's with you all the time. John Stott says the pure at heart are those whose whole life, public and private, is transparent before God. I may add to this, it is people who pray regularly, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any hurtful way in me. Blessed are you, for you shall see God. Seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The peacemakers are those whom the gospel has gotten so hold of, of that they can't help but share the good news of this kingdom of God that we've been talking about. They cannot help. They are excited. And what greater privilege is there, friends, than to be a bearer of good news? To be a person who shares this good news? Isn't that what it means to be evangelical? A word that we ought to redeem? Evangelical? People of good news! Good news people. One of my favorite preachers, Daryl Johnson, says, good newsizers is what we are. People who share and proclaim that good news. But do we do that? Peacemakers, you see, don't proclaim themselves, but the peacemaker himself, the reconciler of the world, Jesus Christ. We are merely his appointed ambassadors, zealous for his good name and his reputation, eager to proclaim that good news. It's an amazing privilege, friends, and we ought to just be excited about it again. What more satisfying calling is there in the whole world than to proclaim to somebody, to your neighbor or your friend or your family member, that the kingdom of God is near here now in Jesus Christ. That through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you can be made right with God. You can have a relationship with Him. What better news? What better news than to tell them that they can be welcome in God's family? No requirements. Come. Blessed are the peacemakers, lovers of shalom, lovers of wholeness. Do we have that reconciling posture today? If so, Jesus says, right on. Blessed are you, peacemakers. Now, as we come to a close, we come to the last Beatitudes, the least popular one. Um, the only one that Jesus actually expands upon for our encouragement with a promise of joy. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
kingdom-ready people, gospel-driven people, will be persecuted. Make no mistake about this. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, says Paul to his disciple Timothy. People who stand up for what is right, for the right order that God intends for the world, who proclaim it even when they proclaim it humbly as we ought to, will be persecuted. They will be reviled, says Jesus. But notice that Jesus doesn't bless persecution because of our foibles or hobby horses or our idiosyncrasies. He blesses the persecution that is for righteousness sake, the righteousness that we talked about. You might say the, the persecution that happens because we proclaim the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Following Jesus comes at a cost, friends. And I think we're in a time in history where we are going to feel that more and more. And I think that's great news because there is joy on the other side. Right? Isn't that the promise? Because there is joy on the other side. If discipleship to Jesus Christ comes at no cost to you, and you've been a Christian, or you call yourself a Christian for a long time, I want to invite you to really ask yourself this morning, have you really picked up the cross of Jesus, denied yourself, and followed Him? Have you felt the burn of discipleship? And I don't say this because, you know, Jesus just wants us to suffer. I say this because this is for our joy. This is because we are His, and if we are not suffering with Him, we are not with Him. But the promise is, rejoice and be glad. You're in great company, says Jesus. John 15, he says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. You're a great company. The company of the prophets that proclaimed God's message. Because if you stand with Jesus, if you attach yourself to him and embrace him, the good news will, um, it will hurt other people sometimes. It will hurt their pride and it will hurt and offend those who want to rely on themselves and live without God. And that's okay. Don't worry. So long as you do it with humility, that's fine. Just expect it. Rejoice and be glad. Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your reward is great. Now, as we close, I would be amiss if I didn't close by pointing us to who these Beatitudes point to and who they are modeled by. You see, um, Jesus is the one who models all of these. He encapsulates all these Beatitudes. If you want to see poverty in spirit, mourning, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness, if you want to see mercy, if you want to see peacemaking and persecution for righteousness' sake, watch Jesus. He is the merciful one. He is the pure in heart. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who suffered and died for our sins. And kingdom-ready people will follow in His footsteps. That's the miracle He's working in us. And that's the road on which He's called us to follow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are excited about this gospel this morning. And we are also... Uh, Reminded of how dependent we are on you. We need you to work this good news in our hearts and in our lives. We need your grace. We need your strength. So turn our hearts towards you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.